And, and we just sat down and said, hey, what can we do to make things better? The FaceTime, because you really need to have that FaceTime before the emergency kicks in. So we want to make sure that we understand what everybody's responsibilities are, what your duties are, and quite frankly, what the municipality can do for you. This week in the Pioneering Change community, we brought together a distinguished group of professionals in the field of research, municipal management, emergency services, and emergency management. The contributors to this meetup today include Bev Siegler, Professor Emerita from Penn State University, Ken Batten, Manager of London Grove Township in Chester County, Pennsylvania, Lucas Martsoff, Assistant Manager of Cranberry Township in Butler County, and Scott Gehring, Fire Chief. Cranberry Township. Paul Leonard also joins us, former manager of Upper Dublin Township, Montgomery County. And we have a guest appearance from David Hall, who joined us from Lower Allen Township. Thank you all for being here today. We have a lot of territory to cover, so let's get started. The first question that I would like to ask today is just how to bring stakeholders together and what does that look like? I think about the idea of, do we need a plan or do we need a process? It seems to me that these are interlinked, that you have to have a good process in order to get a good plan. You can't just sit in your office and come up with a plan. So when you're working in a municipality with all these varied interests and stakeholders, how do you bring them together? And I'm going to ask Ken to respond to this first. Give us an idea of how you think about emergency services, emergency response, emergency management, the whole package. Yep, it, it, it does all blend together. And it really depends on the municipality on how much of that blends together. Because clearly, there are some agencies out there that um, look at two separate emergency services, emergency delivery is one thing, and emergency management's something else. That's what's deferred from the governor that says, hey, every municipality has to have emergency, man emergency management coordinator. And then emergency services is usually the fire, EMS, and police. What we ended up doing is try to blend everything together. We take the stance in London Grove as a community risk reduction municipality. So we look at it globally. It's not just one person's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility from public works to our admin staff. They're always thinking about things and questions that the citizens have. And that was our genesis. And then from there with our emergency services partners. In our local municipality, we do not have police, we have state police. And the state police barracks is in our municipality, so we're the host of them, which is a good thing for us. Two years ago, we were served by two different organizations, fire and ambulance providers. We were split 60-40, and we came together and said, we have a lot of issues here with coordination. So we ended up developing emergency services committee and brought all of our stakeholders together from each one of the agencies, state police, our fire marshal, who was also our emergency management coordinator. And when we just sat down and said, hey, what can we do to make things better? The FaceTime, because you really need to have that FaceTime before the emergency kicks in. So we want to make sure that we understand what everybody's responsibilities are, what are, your duties are, 
And quite frankly, what the municipality can do for whether it's reporting or into the emergency management side of things for disaster declarations, cost recovery, things like that. So we put that all out on the table to let everybody get a sense of where they are. And from that, it grew. We had a couple offshoots in emergency management. We dovetailed with the schools for active shooter, those types of events. We did that all from this committee. So it was bringing the people face-to-face and what can we do to make things better? Looking at it globally instead of in small pieces, just at the fire service level, just at EMS, at the paramedic level, just at that 30,000 foot level, let's all come together and talk. Ken, what what stands out is what you said about the FaceTime before the emergency kicks in. And I remember one part of a conversation I had with you a while ago, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was something to the effect of around the room, you became aware of what people's strengths were. And that sometimes if it was about getting somebody who's elderly and, 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 and not willing to come out of their house when they need to come out of their house, there was somebody you knew on that around that group that had a particular talent. It didn't matter what sort of area they came from. You got to know who was the best person to deal with a particular situation. And I thought that was an important side of response. No, absolutely. You're right. And Scotty, you might be able to, to chime in here with that. But as a chief fire official, I've been in the fire service from since 1977. I hate to say it. that was a long time ago to the through the ranks and and Prior to coming to London Grove, I was a career fire chief. And you get to learn people. You have to understand their talents. It's not just the position. It's what they bring to the table, whether it's IT, whether it's somebody's skill with managing a certain age group. You need to be able to rely on them. And I am a firm believer in, especially I still do emergency response. I deal, well, maybe later we'll talk about the five-county UASI region that we have in southeastern PA. So I'm one of the fire task force leaders for that, but I know I can go and talk to somebody or give somebody instructions. They may not be a chief officer, but I know their capabilities and you give it to them and you let them run with it. And and I think sometimes we go off on our own little tangents, especially as managers, we have people that should be handling a certain project and that might not be it. They might be able to coordinate it, but you might give the lead to somebody else. And I think don't be afraid to do that. Sometimes you have to jump outside the box. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with you more on that. But you got to pick the right salesperson for the right sales job. And uh, you're exact, you're tap dancing around that right now is the fact <laughs> that you just got to find the right person to sell the right topic to the right individual. And you can literally make magic happen. Yeah, you're not the one doing it. And you're not the one that's actually taking care of the task, but you're allowing potentially someone else that may be in your position someday to grow a little bit, to use their skill and to feel more empowered within the organization. Anyone else want to add to this discussion here? So you have volunteer fire companies and in some places, the state police versus your own police force. Pennsylvania's public health community is rarely at the city level or community level. It's mostly county public health officials or state public health officials. So just the nature of how the state's organized and the key disciplines that you need to deal with emergencies make it a lot harder to coordinate and collaborate. And of course, collaboration is the whole name of the game in this area. Yeah. 
I said this the other day to Scott, that this, our audience uh, reaches several hundred municipal managers. And I think this is a question for those who don't have a background. They come into a, a municipality where they may be pulling together a lot of different stakeholders. I would say, it seems to me that would be something that you would have to learn how to get everyone together, where you might have a natural sense of it if you've come from that background. Yeah. yeah, I would say it's uh, it, it can often be difficult. I don't mean to be pessimistic here, but communication and police and EMS and fire is not always the best. We have the tendency to be highly territorial. I think we can always do the job better than our neighbors. And so it is a challenge. And I think what Ken and Scotty brought up is it does take the right salesman, the right vision to bring people in, to get buy-in. You got to get the buy-in to get the collaboration. And that's very challenging, especially when you see the disparity out there across the Commonwealth, everybody doesn't have the same tools to work with either. And that's from assets, human capital to funding. It's a challenge. Let me uh, just move to Paul on a question. I'd like Paul to actually articulate. He does it better than I do. But he brought up the, the, the question of how to really, what the model should be, or could the model change in a way in terms of, can you ask it, Paul? I'm not going to get staffing. The second question that I have today for the group came from a conversation I had with Paul Leonard, and I'm going to let him articulate that question for us. Essentially, it has to do with whether our current model of staffing is appropriate for significant incidents and emergency events. Very briefly, I'm a city manager. I've managed in Pennsylvania and Florida and just finished up about 41 years at Donut. I've also been involved in emergency management and firefighting a lot in Pennsylvania. That said, everybody has said the same thing, and in, in, in at least at one point, regarding the variety of sizes and challenges. I'm wondering if the NIMS model, which we've all been trained on, we've all endorsed, and we understand the need for that kind of type of expandable interoperable arrangement, really has been studied here. I'm fascinated that uh, Professor Sigler's on, on, on the call we have had in Montgomery County, where I spent most of my time, professors up from the University of Delaware and others. I'm interested in data as well as real solid case studies about what works, particularly for events that go through more than one operational period. I just went through an EF2 tornado on September 1 with a fatality that really went for a solid five or six days before we really got things settled down enough. I've been involved with campaign fires in Montgomery County. The point is, Montgomery County has 830,000 people, and we have issues that are not faced the same as Carbon County or pick any other name. My point is, again, I'm a believer in NIMS. I understand the concept. I understand its value. I'm wondering if, particularly in Pennsylvania as a case study or in events of longer duration or complexity, if the model's being used, how does it modified? And again, is it hubris for us to think that NIMS and that type of approach works every time is truly expandable? Again, I, I want to leave it more as a question than a comment. I've been fascinated by the big applications of NIMS out west with the major you know, forest fire. Or are we looking at it, its application here in Pennsylvania for small towns, large towns, small incidents, that kind of stuff? And is it still the right model? Uh, I don't think we challenge it as much because we know it's better than disorganization and mayhem, which can and does happen. So let me just throw that out there as a challenge, maybe to the professor or to the others. In Montgomery County, we've been bringing in 
we have a program called EDITS, the Emergency and Disaster Incident Training Symposium. Some of you may have heard about it. We bring in people after significant incidences, usually a year so that they could speak about it. Is it some of the liabilities dropped off? And what I've found in really a fascinating training session, it, usually, it, it runs two days and we bring people in from all over the country that have been through major incidents, is that they have, they've learned a lot. They can, they can communicate that and some of the lessons learned and all the good stuff that they have at. But we don't challenge them about what the best model was and if NIMS really worked. So I'll leave that as a broad question. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I don't think we're studying it and I don't, have not necessarily seen it evolve. And people that do more of this might, might be able to comment on that. Thanks. A couple of things. One, of, of course, NIMS does come out of the wildfire flight fighting out west, and now it's been applied to everything. I think people are looking at it, especially because of the pandemic, because you notice that it's incident management. And of course, like a pandemic is a rolling thing that go, could go, goes on for years. And also we have disasters of one type that can overlap other types of disasters. So we just went through a pandemic with all kinds of hurricane seasons and tornadoes and fires and, and, and everything else. I think it is constantly looked at and needs looked at again. Maybe some of you have participated, but I think the very best thing that people in Pennsylvania can do, and I'm surprised how little of it is done, is to get a group together regionally and approach Pima or FEMA to get to Emmitsburg and have an exercise down there or four or five days of sessions hand-tailored for Pennsylvania community circumstances and culture. Has anyone participated in anything at Emmitsburg? Yeah, we definitely have. We brought people, we brought the same trainers that do Emmitsburg up to Montgomery County to do tabletops with us. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah. I've been to sessions down there where people up here regionally have gotten police, fire, emergency services, people at the local and state level for multiple communities and approach FEMA, mostly working through FEMA to approach FEMA to have a, a, hand, a handcrafted thing just for that set of communities with exercises tailored to the, the events that might happen in those communities. And I think that's one way to, to deal with having to have a model. And I don't really think, e even though NIMS is used, I, there really isn't a model because you know the old saying about every time there's a disaster, we plan for the next disaster like it, whereas we really should be planning for future disasters. And if, if you're planning for the future, you can't necessarily rely on a model as such. So I think things like after action reports, exercises, the kinds of things that sounds like what you're doing in your county are what needs to be done and don't worry about a model. Bev, I, you're right on so many points. EMI is a great place. The Chester County, several years ago, we went down there as a county. I think we had probably 10 different municipalities that sent a representative uh, and it, it was there for, we were there for the week. So it was good. Uh, it was really worthwhile. Planning for disasters. We went from that individual having our disaster handbook that was huge. And then we got into all hazard planning. And I think we're talking almost two different things. We have the planning, we have NIMS, we have that administrative level. 
But sometimes we're not filtering that back down to the lower level, that mid-management and below. I think that's sometimes our problem, that we get so caught up in NIMS, making sure that we have all the positions filled. By the time we get the positions filled, we don't have the workers on the ground to do the work. We have to have that compromise someplace. And, and thinking about every incident's different, right? Don't no matter have- where you where you are. Don't we have those tools available to us though? Pennsylvania provides the incident management team out of the state fire academy. They can bring all those resources and key players to the table. So you're not inundating your local resources. I'm not speaking from experience. I've never had an event such as Paul was speaking about. I just know that tools in the toolbox somewhere. I look at NIMS as you want, you unpack the suitcase as you need it. So I need finance. I'm going to pull that piece out. Right. I need operations. I'm going to pull that piece out. You don't have to fill that entire hierarchy out. You're just pulling out the pieces that you need, but you can get them from the state. No, Has and, anybody and had an experience exactly, with that? Yeah, and that's exactly my point, Scott. You have to be able to know what you have available and what you can utilize in your area. Having the, the state incident support team come out, you have to understand that it's the second or third operational period, best case that they're coming out. Like Paul uh, suggested in Southeastern PA with the five county region, we can activate a fire task force from any one of the counties, even Philadelphia, to come to one of our events, if you will. So we're going to get six engines and two truck companies to your site within an hour generally. Normally, we're scheduling that in advance, a second or third operational period. We use that in Chester County a couple of times. Delaware County has used it, and now we're using it internally in Chester County as well to not take away from that small town that has a big event, and that's not strip all the resources. That's bring people in from outside the area and help them out as an assist organization. So yeah, that all that's available, but I think you just have to mold it to what fits best for you. Yeah, but going back to a comment uh, a couple minutes ago, I think that it is hard to get what you're trying to do down to the lower levels and get everybody involved in the community. And a, a couple of points there. As managers, you're just uh, bombarded with having to have a plan for everything. You have a comprehensive plan, you have a, a saldo, you have an emergency management plan and so on. I'm a big fan of trying to integrate your plans. And I think that emergency management is so important because it affects every inch of land and water and air. It's everything and could happen at any time. And Pennsylvania is especially prone to the natural disasters, but any disaster could happen. A truck could be going through your town with toxic chemicals and turnover and you have a disaster. So I think that you need to have your emergency management plans and all your people integrated. And that's the task. And the question is, how do you do that? And And, uh, one other thing to add to that is I just turned in a report uh, a week ago on the Burroughs Association did a statewide study of management priorities. And they sent out the questionnaire, got the data, maybe some of you participated. But for the last two times they've done that, I've been the one that, that analyzes the data and writes up the report. And I'm astounded by the number of places still in the state that, that they say they have plans for this, that, and the other thing. But when you ask them how old the plans are, when the last time they were updated, it's a long time ago, 10 years or more for a lot of places. 
And the second thing is the elected officials, by and large, a lot of them don't know anything about the status of their plans. So in addition to the need to integrate your plans, there's also a need to uh, do more at orientation with elected officials to get them into understanding uh, these comprehensive integrative tasks that need collaboration like emergency management. If, if I could just insert here, and I'd love to know if any of you have worked with your elected officials on that very thing, but I do want to mention any of you who are here on this call, I see Dave Hall has joined us, feel free to, you can put something in the chat or just jump in the conversation if you can, but we, we welcome comments and questions. Has anyone here worked with the elected officials on this? Yeah, we do all the time. In fact, I actually hired a part-time emergency public, I call him a public safety planner. He works across all the platforms for me. And, but Justin actually rewrote, every municipality is required under Title 35 to have a, an emergency operations plan. And Justin wrote the revision here because that was the problem. When I came here, I went back and it was five years or more since it was updated. So we actually wrote it and what we took the pandemic thing because uh, we worked virtually for that. So we rewrote the plan to include a virtual evolution. So everything starts virtually now until you actually want to get together. And that's usually a, a higher incident because one of the things I think that's missing when you look at it is there's multiple levels of incidents. Most disasters and emergencies are local. So it's your local resources that are going to respond first before you up it to the next level, there's five levels that FEMA's designated as being the levels of emergency response. And you only get to national for major disasters. So we wrote our plan for that and just tagged a bunch of annexes. We have now have, we don't call it the pandemic annex, but it's essentially biological threat annex because it could be anything. We put a pipeline, we had Sunoco pipeline running through the municipality. So we have a pipeline. We met with those folks and developed a pipeline annex. Uh, but everything goes back to that EOP and the ICS system. And where we see we struggle sometimes, in fact, we just had a 73-car pileup on one of our uh, four lanes here. Nobody at the local level does unified command very well. So we, we had a lot of stovepipe incident commanders that were trying to run the show. So we're, we're working to try to develop how we mature that problem. But I think it's I think what I've heard before is I think there is a lot of misunderstanding. It's we've been preached to us that we have this 300, 400 level and everything that goes into that, but we really miss the boat sometimes in, in how we train and how we make it reality-based system instead of just some academic exercise of incident command. That is absolutely uh, very well said, Dave. I appreciate that. You know, having been through three or four significant incidents, nationally declared disasters, that translation from plan to incident management itself and the hands-on stuff is fascinating to me. And, and Professor, I think you're right. One of the ways to do that is, is the, the good people at Emmitsburg or those types of consultants that can train for that. It, it, when people get some hands-on experience, I just took a team through this tornado and we've been through a bunch of them. But when they get to that point where they realize this is what's going to happen when your incident commander tires out, where you have to get a, a second or third operational period, how do you communicate that across that shift change? 
Or how do you make sure you're bringing people in that haven't been to any of these incident meetings or aren't even aware to plan? How do you bring them in to quickly get up to speed about what the, what, what you're trying to accomplish? That type of hands-on stuff. For this next segment, I asked Lucas and Scotty to talk about modernization and building capacity to communicate across silos and finding the right people with the right qualifications. Lucas gets us started. I guess I'll just make a general uh, comment. I think every county is required to have a disaster management plan. I've participated in those. I've helped put together those plans. They actually turn out to be really great plans. But unfortunately, at the county level, most of what I've seen is usually those plans are put on shelves. There's no active training. There's no active incidents to practice and communicate countywide. So to be honest with you, like you guys said, disaster response is really local. From a manager standpoint, the only thing I can do is try and have a cheerleader to hit that broader, higher county government, but have my own house in order, making sure that my team has all the communication tools that I can provide from a finance standpoint and encourage them through as much leadership as possible to um, to take those plans off the shelves and and actually train with them and use them and revisit them and change them as things change and technology changes. I'm really fortunate. Bev, I'm not surprised that 80% of the folks don't take emergency management serious. In Pennsylvania, it's mostly rural, suburban. Now it's a little bit different once you get into the metropolitan areas. You get a little bit more resources to work with. I'm very fortunate to have came to Cranberry. I'm very fortunate to hire somebody like Scotty who doesn't only do it for a job, but he's very passionate about it. Scott, why don't you just discuss a little bit on how we make sure the, the plan stays off the shelf and we are constantly using it through training and constantly having it at the forefront of our minds, constantly teaching people how important it is to always have it at the forethought. Sure. Thanks, Lucas. It reminds me of a, a, a meme I've seen before is everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And once the incident happens, i.e. the tornado and Paul's situation, he had a great plan, but coming into it, it's like, I can't plan for everything. I can't pull all these pieces together. For us, it has just been a comprehensive process of trying to solidify the leadership within the organization. Now, Nancy, you were speaking about earlier the the leadership aspect of it. And what we've tried to do is uh, through strategic planning, we identified that we had massive turnover within the organization of burnout of the volunteer leaders of all of our emergency scenes. So what we have done was put together a process that tried to reduce the burden on those leaders and also the ability to capture the, the, the knowledge that they had that they're getting from the other individuals. Like Lucas was talking about having capturing what everybody's doing on a daily basis or you were saying that Lucas was trying to capture that and we're trying to do that in the fire company as well we've actually selected leaders versus people being voted on and put into positions you see that in the the rural and rural areas that Lucas was just talking about all the emergency management coordinators it's usually just someone that's like hey I'll take the job they have no background, no education, and that someone just puts them into the position. And they're really set up for failure almost right from the get-go because it takes a lot of action and a lot of time to be able to get where they're at. I'm not only a leader here in Cranberry Township, but I am at a municipality up north. And their EMA is a disaster just associated with the fact that they don't have someone paying attention to it and or a qualified leader attending to all of its needs. But the, the aspect of ensuring that the leadership that you have in the position is extremely important. And I think the only way that anybody can identify that or fix that system is by 
planning and ensuring that the selection of that leader is a modernized process. Now, that requires change. And all of us on this call know that change is not the easiest thing in the world to accomplish, whether that's internally or through anything else that we're trying to do. Change is is a nasty word for a lot of people. Now, I'm speaking from the volunteer fire service side. Change is almost uh, non-existent in most organizations unless they get the right people in place with the right vision to be able to implement it. That's why we have done the officer selection process in our organization to bring the change to the forefront and uh, allow people to grow into the positions that they're in. Sorry, I'm not trying not to take up too much time and capture as much as that I could in those statements, but it really takes a planning process to ensure that you're implementing the right tools for success. Just to try and boil that down, we're trying to capture the institutional knowledge on paper but we're also ensuring that institutional knowledge is carried on through relationships and leadership. So we're trying to capture two different ways. Other than that, I don't really know what else you can do. Yeah. A lot of, so that's why we've went to the, we have a career chief's position here in Cranberry Township. We found that burnout associated with individuals in the position was very high. What happens every two years when a new chief's voted in? All the knowledge that they spent working on for two years just walked out the door with them because they don't want to talk to their buddies that are their person, the next person. So we're able to capture that knowledge and that data by keeping one one person at the helm uh, and carrying it on versus it switching every two and four and six years. I was struck by the comment on who becomes the emergency management coordinator. You said, you know, someone raises their hand and says, I'll do it. My experience has been uh, the person who misses the meeting or leaves for a few minutes comes back in the room and it's congratulations, you've got a new position. So that's a stride forward. That's good. In this next segment, Bev Siegler shifts the conversation towards the topic of mitigation. This strikes me as a more difficult line of conversation as we are talking about a future with uncertainty as opposed to analyzing a specific event in the past. I think it is interesting that in mitigation efforts, we really need to bring in a lot more stakeholders to think about what could potentially occur in the future. I have a comment that might change the conversation a little bit is, Everything we've been talking about is response and staffing for response and preparedness and how do you do all that and and a little bit on preparedness. But what about avoiding the disaster in the first place, mitigation? And when you want to talk about coordination and leadership, the people in your government, in your organizations that are best equipped to do that aren't even in the calculus mentioned so far like land use planners and, and so on. So what do you do about mitigation? The first comment that I heard when we started this session was about essentially vulnerable populations. And uh, you can plan for that to protect vulnerable populations when there's a disaster. But that's a whole different group of people usually. So any comments on that? and leadership. I think some of the township and and borough and county managers are the best people to to work on a mitigation. Upper Dublin spent uh, $17 million on two high hazard dams. Those were the first high hazard dams built in Pennsylvania or permitted in Pennsylvania since 1989. 
Pennsylvania's been taking them out. Somebody mentioned the oil hazard. The most significant hazard in Pennsylvania remains flooding. We're second to almost no one for the amount of flooding and flood damage we've had over the years and, and the frequency. The tornadoes are a new thing. We're not building dams. We're not doing mitigation on that. The other thing to, to, to force people to take a look at it is we're starting to see finally that bond ratings and municipals' uh, financials are going to be judged based upon their resiliency. If you don't have mitigation, if you aren't dealing with stream bank stabilization, detention, dams, you name it, you're going to see some of your costs go up pretty dramatically because you're not as resilient. I did also want to comment, uh, and I'm fascinated by this because I think Pennsylvania is a good incubator for this stuff. We do train on NIMS. It's rare that you'll see outside of the tabletops where we really train on leadership. Uh, the volunteer fire service is a good place to see that leadership. People tend to rise to the top based upon the na native or organic skills. But one of the things I'd like to see is that we start training about how people talk uh, to each other, how they elicit information, how they report to each other quickly during these incidents, because I do like the response part of it. Very briefly, because I know we're running out of time. One of the things that came out of fire ground command, incident command, the Alan Bernasini stuff about actually managing an ongoing fire was one of the concepts called the CAN report, conditions, actions, needs. You, the fire chiefs will recognize that term. But what we did prior to the tornado, and it was very helpful during is make sure that public works, park and recreation, all these other departments understand how to quickly make a CAN report. What are the conditions you're facing? What actions are you taking about it? What are your current needs? This focused people during the event, and it was a simple leadership tool so you can lead your department, know that you have to understand those three things and report them out quickly in a group setting. I'd love to see us develop not only just NIMS training, but leadership training, draw on some natural skills that we see in the volunteer service or police or EMS, and then give them kind of that hands-on stuff that the professor mentioned. Again, sorry for rambling on that, but having been through a number of major incidents, I'm seeing the gaps in our training or how we filled those gaps from planning to actually implementing the response. But is that even a close down point, Nancy? I'm sorry. No, you, very thoughtful. There's a lot to uh, process there. Thanks. You know, one of the struggles, and, and I spent I had five years in tenure at Pima, and one of the struggles is, is the range of ability across the Commonwealth is amazing. You go to some places and they are the, I raise my hand, I'm the emergency manager. In some cases, they're the appointed. Some places, municipal officials are extremely involved and others, they don't have a clue. And you go to the Cranberries of Pennsylvania and they've got a great plan and they're advancing things and moving it forward. And I know that there are the same type of organizations, local and same with counties across the Commonwealth. But there, there's, because we are a Commonwealth, in, therein lies another one of our problems, and that is everything is local municipal based and some shine and others need a lot of polish. So it, I'm not quite sure how you overcome some of that. I think you can develop programs. Even at Pima, we knew there was a requirement that everybody has emergency operations plan, but not everybody did. And we see that even in, in my county because they track that and they're pretty good. The county's pretty good at saying yours is overdue. You need to have it. Uh, and you can't get emergency disaster money unless you have one. 
in a mitigation plan, but that doesn't seem to push it because it's like, when was the last time we had a disaster? So it really doesn't mean anything to us until it hits home and it becomes an absolute need and, and you basically are penalized because you don't. There's no incentive in some ways to make some of these things happen. You, Scott, you mentioned the incident support team from the from out of the state. Montgomery County has an incident support team. It's not the same level, certainly for certifications, but and taking 10, 15, 20 people that have experience that have interest and putting them on a team, making sure they have decent insurance, some sort of workers' comp, and being able to roll them out to help support e- either in the initial response or in that third or fourth operational period. That's really helped out a lot. Tom Sullivan, the uh, former public safety director down here in Montgomery County got that going. And it's a direct copy of, I think, what you're seeing in Chester. I think there was a big one out of Harrisburg for uh, that I remember. And The force multiplier you get with that is just amazing. For example, recently, the well, I can't say recently anymore. Within the last five years, I remember the flooding going on the eastern side of the state. You got the fire chief from the city of Pittsburgh on that incident management team over in your area helping you guys manage incidents. Like, that's fantastic. And, and it, I think the simple point I'd make is that IST, the incident support team model, might be worth really expanding as a layer of uh, planning and, 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 and providing those resources. And force multiplier is the word. That's what saved my tail in Upper Dublin because they, they were available because the tornado was so focused. It was only eight miles by 300 yards. I had good people on an incident support team that were coming from areas that weren't affected. If it had been regional, like super regional, like the flood, they might not have been available. They might have been tied up. But I would love to see the state or the planners or, or even the academics take a look at that as a way to really help out and maybe uh, case study it so we could really make it more formal or at least more supported. In this last segment, we begin to talk about communication, education, awareness, and in particular, the role of the municipal manager in mitigation efforts. The municipal manager has, in many respects, a unique and wider perspective, which enables them to bring together the critical stakeholders. I ask Bev Siegler to start us off. Okay, Broadly, I guess everybody's familiar with uh, FEMA, uh, maybe 15 or 16 months ago, put out those maps for every county in the United States of what their vulnerability was. Like I'm in Dauphin County. If you look at Dauphin County, you should be shocked because we're really high up on the scale of vulnerability, even without Three Mile Island anywhere nearby. So one of the things uh, I think every website uh, should have on it uh, a, a couple links to things like that, to because in a disaster, the you normally talk about first responders, but really the first responders are the victims also, not just the fire or the police, the people that get hit when it happens. So uh, a manager needs to start with citizens, and that's everything from educating them uh, about these issues and what to do to maybe uh, helping build a volunteer corps, which FEMA really pushes. And there's a lot of that good around. In terms of elected official, it was already said, there's just wide variation, but understand that elected officials in Pennsylvania are basically volunteers. And the, the vast majority of elected officials run on a single issue. I know, and I work with the local governments, uh, the municipalities or the counties, 
that talk to them and ask them, why did you run? It's usually one issue that they really were interested in. And then they're astounded at what local government does or what county governments do. So there's just uh, a lot to be done in terms of educating local officials about what the options are. And specifically on mitigation, it was mentioned that we're a big flood state, and I think we are. We're either one or two in, in terms of floods. So our floods tend to be smaller than the repetitive floods in Louisiana that are devastating. But we have more miles of streams and water in this state than we have of roads. I don't think people realize that. So one thing a manager can do is to really educate the local officials about the cost savings that you can get from various mitigation strategies and maybe get more communities in the state interested in the community rating system that, that FEMA has to get your numbers up and therefore be able to apply for more money for mitigation. Another theme that was talked about today was capacity or capabilities, the wide variation across the state. And it's, it's massive in managerial capacity, technical capacity, financial capacity, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a need to get more uh, collaboration, intermunicipal, or maybe with a, a good cog, if you have a good cog to uh, do something like grant writing to get your hands on money. I saw that Governor Wolf signed a bill about a month ago. There's now some more emergency management money. Uh, I'm sorry, emergency services money out there for EMS. But I don't know how many communities will be applying for that or, or getting it because of the lack of capacity. And you could multiply that by just about every bit of grant money there is out there. And right now, everybody's interested in the new infrastructure bill that the federal government has, but the small governments for the competitive grants part of that are going to be left out unless they know how to write a good proposal. And if they don't have the capacity within, they're going to have to collaborate and find some partners to do it. I could go on and on, but there's just so much that could be done but you have to lay the groundwork. And I think the manager is the key person that unfortunately is responsible for everything and can pull things together and know how to do things. So should be just really aggressive in that role of communicating, educating, especially on mitigation, because then you avoid your problems and your expenses that would come later. The tall order. Now I'm going to give you a little jaundice report young and old managers in Pennsylvania uh, that have taken on the uh, volunteer fire service, or for that matter, the police unions, if they have a local police department. They're usually so shell-shocked, they never go back and mess with them again, or they treat it as a, an event they deal with every three or four years to their own, own risk. It, it, it's very difficult to challenge uh, the volunteer fire service about standards for response. Police departments are absolutely entrenched and, and have much more support than general management. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit jaded, but a manager that takes on these issues for data with data or challenges some basic assumptions does so at their own peril. Maybe emergency management is the way to do it without without taking things head on. But there are, there are some serious issues that in, within those operations about what they do, how they do it, how much they spend. And a manager that that challenges it, and I did it during my career, 
it can be daunting. Yeah, I'm definitely going to back what Paul just said. All a manager can do is do the best that he can. There's political realities. There's financial capacity. And to be honest, when I hear mitigation, I hear dollar signs. When municipalities can't pay for unfunded mandates for stormwater regulations, the political support that you get to try and support or mitigate things that may or may not happen. It's the right fight. It's the good fight to have. You have to balance things uh, and what the priorities are going on in the community, and that can change from community to community. But I, I can certainly tell you, I took on that fight and I turned into a burnt charcoal briquette, So, which is why I relocated to Cranberry and started a new chapter. So, I'd still tough. argue, though, that there's strength in numbers and you don't have to do it uh, as the individual manager. There are ways to get together with others, to work with the associations and so on and like it's an opportunity of a generation now the the new infrastructure bill and mm -hmm. there's there's formula grants that's one fight but then the competitive grants you're going to have a disadvantage if you don't apply for that mm -hmm. and a lot of that money could go to green infrastructure that yeah, would deal with uh, combined water sewer. And, and of course, the all the grants out there, the model is to direct it to those who are successful at collaboration. So, of course, we're always trying to find the collaborative approach to deal with things, particularly stormwater mandates. But I can tell you, it's extremely challenging out there to get folks who often don't enjoy working with one another to see the big picture and think more broadly. It is definitely a big challenge. Hey, that's yeah, I've, done, I've, done buy, I've done buyouts of, of homes that are in, in the floodway, in, in the floodway. It's like a three-year saga per home. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. But it's having some success across the country. That was an unheard of policy option years ago. And now it's not common, but it's becoming increasingly more used as a mitigation option. So there are success stories out there. I like what you said, that this is an opportunity of a generation, Bev. And I wonder if there is some value in coming back together another time to talk more specifically about accessing those grant monies. It, it makes me think about missed opportunities. And if people knew a little bit more, I don't know if, if others think the same way. How much do we know about those opportunities? And do we have the right people at the table or do we need to send somebody that can, where do you learn about that? Who can, who can help us increase capacity around accessing those kinds of funds? I can tell you that it's a really attractive topic. The, the Burroughs Association that, that did these studies on municipal priorities, one in 2017 and one last year, the number one issue, and this was not just for boroughs, this was all local governments, to help the associations with their training and their lobbying with the legislature. The number one thing that comes out of that is interested in infrastructure. The number two is grants. <clears throat> number three is water and sewer, which is an, you know, a subset of the infrastructure issues. And uh, every two years, I think I speak to the mayor's association. And the last one I did, they asked, they picked the topic, they asked for how do we get more grants? I think the name of it was, where do we go to get more dough, was the name of the talk that I gave. But it, it's just an enormously big problem for a state with so many small governments and such a lack of capacity in terms of expertise. And now this flood of money coming in, uh, I mean, local governments, state governments, theoretically, 
are flush in money, but they know how they have to know how to get it. Yeah, I would say securing grants in Pennsylvania is fend for yourself. And again, here adds to the disparity. Those who have resources to put match match towards funding, who have the human capital that know what levers you need to pull to federal, federal and state government, um, varies widely across Pennsylvania. And some rural areas philosophically disagree with grants. So you have that challenge uh, as well. Yeah. Plus, for grant purposes for us as a public safety in Cranberry Township is extremely difficult. Lucas and his team have done a really good job of trying to give us the tools that we need to succeed. Some of that comes with them recognizing the fact already that we have those tools. So it continues to make us bear costs associated with the fire department side of things because they don't even consider us because we have we already have the keys to success. And we're penalized essentially because we are well-funded and well-supported by the municipality. I've actually asked professional grant writers to take care of like an SCBA grant for the fire department. They're like, don't even waste your time because you've, you've got too many mechanisms in play. They want the poor, untrained fire department to get this kind of money, but yet they don't apply for it because they don't have the means or the uh, ability to get the document where it needs to be. It's painful for us on the that side. I could talk much longer on this topic. I think that everyone has just brought a lot of ideas to the table. I think it just reveals how much work there is to be done in this area. And yet I'm so grateful that, that there are people that really are passionate about this. And I'd like to highlight that and uh, provide opportunities for others to learn from you. Thanks for inviting me, Nancy. Good job setting the meeting up. Thank yeah, you so much. much. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, David. Really good to see Thanks. you. Thanks. Nice, nice talking, everybody. Mm-hmm. Same, Mayor. Scotty, good seeing you. Yeah. You too, Dave. Thank you. Well, Nancy, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Great to see you. And great to I, I really enjoyed everybody. It's uh, wonderful to, to hear from all the good work. Yeah, and all across the state, too. So we got a lot of different. Yeah. Thank you. Take care.